0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And this morning we are continuing through and actually concluding a very important series uh, in the life of our church. In fact, as I was just going through this series, uh, starting three weeks ago when we started off with talking about what does it mean to be an Antioch person in terms of what is it in the things that we live in, in the rhythm of our life, what does it mean to reflect what the first church of Antioch was, looked like 2,000 years ago? Followed up by a very important series uh, entitled, With Jesus, Like Jesus, For Jesus. Have you heard that before? Yes. It's so funny, where's Dave? Dave, <laughs> Dave was looking out at the wall when I was walking in, and he goes, I read the wall today. So, did everybody read the wall today? Okay, good, as a reminder, as you're coming, you're going, that that is the, the marker of, of who we are and our mission, is to experience with, which is reconciliation, which is Jesus bringing back us back into relationship with God. And the next progression of that is that we would actually become like Jesus, which we talked about last week, and the things that, things that we can do in our lives to help produce to our lives to look like Jesus. And then it really culminates in this. This is the ultimate goal of the gospel. This is the ultimate goal of why God has done what God is doing is because at the end of the day, what our lives are supposed to look like and what they're supposed to be about is not us. They're supposed to be about God. In every aspect. Not just lip service, not just doing good deeds, but from the core, from the inside of who we are to the outward reflection of that, our lives are supposed to be devoted and focused on God's purpose, His mission, His glory in the world. We're actually, because of what God has done in us, our lives are supposed to make God look good. That's the reason we exist. You're like, well, that's kind of a self-centered God. No, it's not self-centered when you're the best. Seriously. When you're the best, it's not bragging. And there is no one greater than God. And so our lives are supposed to reflect Him. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what it looks like from the example of the Apostle Paul in, in the book of Philippians and his own journey and getting off of his agenda and off of himself onto ultimately what is most important, that's God. Because one of the things that you and I will discover is that life becomes fulfilling when life ceases to be about us. Life is miserable when it's about us. We know it is. Because all the times that we try to make things work for us and uh, on all of the hopes and dreams that we have that are self-centered don't come to pass. Or they do and they come far short of what we thought they would be. Life is miserable. But when you live for somebody who's better, who's greater, who's more deserving than you are, then your life finds meaning and purpose and contentment. So we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to start and kind of look at two two sections of these verses because we're going to start with the first part, and that is Paul talking about his past, talking about what he's experienced, which really reflects what we'll talk about first is a life that's centered on us, a life about us. What does it look like? So in the first six verses, this is Philippians 3, 1 through 6, Paul describes for himself what that looks like. He says this, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about religious people, religious leaders. He says, for we are the circumcision who uh, worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then here's Paul kind of going through his own history. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh Also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's slightly boasting, as you can tell. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. We'll stop there. So Paul is... Writing to a a bunch of people who know him pretty well and he's explaining some very important things to them about his own journey And we're going to start with this and paul's describing his life before jesus and He's describing a life that was centered on him His accomplishments and what he wanted to do and his resume And what we look at when we look at paul it actually reflects back to us our own journey of life about us And there's five things I want to highlight about paul's experience that's true for us A life that is about us ultimately is a life That is about my pride What does Paul say in verse 4? He says confidence in the flesh. He says it twice. And he's giving his own kind of fleshly and earthly and human resume of how impressive he is. But he has this confidence in the flesh. And whether you and I want to admit it or not, there's lots of seasons in our life where whether we say it outwardly or not, we believe it inwardly, we have a sense of confidence in our own flesh and our own ability to do something. And it comes through, really it's motiva- motivated by insecurity, but it comes through this idea that somehow I'm okay and I can take pride in myself. And the challenge is, is that, that you and I, when, when that becomes a part of our lives, when pride reigns, our rules our life, you and I always have to look around to find somebody that we're better than. Because pride always tries to make itself superior to everybody else around it. And so what happens is life becomes about comparison. When when pride is the center of your life, you live a a miserable existence because you always have to find somebody that you feel better than, and ultimately you're going to find somebody who's better than you, and then your pride is crushed. It's like the scene in Top Gun. I know it's an old classic movie now, but when... When Maverick and, and Goose are sitting in the briefing room and they're looking around and Maverick's distracted from what his commanding officer is speaking and Goose says to him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking around the room to see who the best is. Think about your life. How many times in different contexts, you, if you would be honest with yourself, you're looking around to see who the best is and you're hoping it's you. So you're either feeling really good about yourself because you feel everybody's just lower than you or you feel horrible about yourself because everybody else in the room is superior to you horrible existence. Why? Because life is about us. That's what? Confidence in the flesh. That's the life that Paul used to live. He doesn't live that anymore. Second thing. It's about my status. So Paul goes on in verse 5, and he goes through a list that you and I probably don't get, but for a Jew, this is an impressive resume. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What is he saying? I'm a pure Jew. In fact, Paul is as pure Jewish as you can get. He's, he's He's a thoroughbred. He is a pure breed. There's no mix in him. He's purely Jewish, and this is impressive to people, especially to the religious leaders he's talking to. He's circumcised, which is the sign of the Jews. So he, that's obviously very important. He's not a convert. He didn't come into Judaism. He was born into it from the day he was born. He's from the elite tribe of Benjamin, and he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means his parents were even Hebrews. So he comes from generations. So this is, he's listing this. People go, whoa, that's impressive. And think about in our own lives, our status, our status of who we are in certain contexts as being so important to us that we want to make sure everybody knows that we're somebody. And what's amazing about what Paul's describing here is something that you and I have to be aware of in our own lives. Paul is describing things that are true about him that he had nothing to do with. He's taking pride in everything he was born into. He was born into Israel. He was born into being a Jew. He was circumcised, not because he circumcised himself, but because his parents on the eighth day took him to the temple, and he was circumcised. He happened to be in the tribe of Benjamin, not because he picked it, because he was born into it. He was born to parents who were Hebrews. Paul had nothing to do with that, but yet what does he do? He takes pride. Why? Because that's his status. You know, I think sometimes we take the greatest pride in things that we had nothing to do with. And we think that we're better and our status is higher because of who we are, yet we didn't do anything to earn it or gain it, and yet we still somehow think as though we're better than other people. And as Americans, we have to be careful with this. Because we walk around and we function, and many of us are blind to this, but if you travel around the world, there's a certain stigma about Americans. We have a certain status that we, we take very seriously. And for the majority of us, that status has nothing to do with us attaining it. It just happens to be that you were born in a certain country that has certain privileges not because you've earned them because you were blessed with them and when you were blessed instead of earning it's a different reality. But think about that. We should take pride in the joy of what God has done in allowing us to be born in a nation where we have freedom and we have prosperity and we have all those great things but don't for a minute think that you and I have earned any of it because the only status that we have that matters is the status that God gives us. But Paul was about that appreciate where we've come from but don't make it your status as though you and i are better than anybody else third thing and that isn't goes on in verse five that it, it is about my success that ultimately a life about me is how successful and so paul says this he goes as to the law i'm a pharisee a pharisee was the the top religious leader was an expert in the law that you couldn't get higher than than the pharisees and so he's He's stating this, and so for Paul, his success was, listen, in in the religious context, in Jewish context, I am as as high as you can get in terms of my knowledge, my authority, and my expertise. He was successful. Now, does that mean that you and I, when we're successful in a career or at a trade or in in something that we do in life, that somehow we can't be satisfied or happy with that? No, we can. But if what we end up doing is that the ultimate goal is our success, which means when I achieve a certain status— People look at me and they they are drawn to me because it's about me. That's when we go off the deep end a little bit. Because the reason you and I can achieve any kind of success in our life is because God created us. Jesus died for us. He's given us life. He's given us the capacity to do what we do. So ultimately, who deserves the glory for success? God does. God does. You know, you're probably going to see it one or two times this afternoon if you watch the Super Bowl. Somebody's going to get interviewed and they're going to make a great play in the game, or going to be MVP of the Super Bowl, and something's going to happen. And probably one, if not three or four, depending, because if it's the Philadelphia Eagles, you probably will hear about it. Some will say, yeah, we just, h- how was it to make that great catch, or to throw that, that touchdown pass, or to make that interception? And they'll say, the, one of the first things out of their mouth will be, you know what, before I even say how great that was, let me just tell you, I owe it all to Jesus, because of what he's done in my life. You're going to hear athletes say that. Why are they going to say that? Because they realize the only reason they're on that field, the only reason they have the ability to do what they're doing is not because they're some great human being. It's because God gave them the capacity to do what they're doing. And if you and I were to think the ultimate goal of my success is not for me to say, wow, look at me. I've arrived. I'm successful. Because Jesus reminds us in Matthew that if that's the way we live our life, then whatever pat on the back you get on that mo- in that moment, that's the extent of the credit you're going to get for your success. But if God is the one who gets the glory, then you will spend eternity being grateful for the fact that god got the glory and you didn't because you'll be in glory forever with jesus that's a better reward five seconds of fame or an eternity with god i'll take the second i'll take the latter then we're rolling right through these then there's a, the, the fourth reality and that's this it's about my effort Paul says in verse 6, As for zeal, to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. That means Paul worked really passionately in everything that he did. He worked really hard. And so even before he came to Jesus, obviously he was on the opposite team. He was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. And he did it well with zeal and with passion. Because for him, he realized that his effort was everything about him making his status right before God so that somehow God would give him favor. He had to do everything. It was all about his effort. And we'll see in in a little bit that that has to shift. But if you and I think about if our, our life is about us, I know this is true for me. If my life is about me, you know what I end up doing? I end up trying to satisfy something inside of me that makes me feel good enough for God. That's my life. It's about my effort, and so I feel guilty when I'm not doing things well for God, or I feel shame because I haven't matched up to somehow some status I put in my mind of what I'm supposed to achieve, and so because of that, it all becomes about how hard I work, and I want to make sure I'm working hard, then that God sees that I'm doing that, and other people see that I'm doing that. Why? Because it's about my effort, and if people don't see my effort, then they don't know how hard I'm working. Any better, Anybody ever encountered a tip jar at Starbucks or wherever you go that sits on the counter? Right? Tip jars, you guys do frequent, like, restaurants and things. You've heard of tipping before, you guys. Are you awake? Are you already thinking about the Super Bowl? (laughs) So you walk in, there's a tip jar. Anybody ever drop money into a tip jar? Now, be honest with yourself. When you do it, you want to make sure the employee is seeing you do it, right? Right? This side's honest. You guys are warming up to the idea. (laughs) Because the worst thing possible is to drop in a dollar or five dollars, and the employee doesn't even see you do it. Right? And it just gets lost in the mix of all the other money. they are like, oh. In fact, there's an old Seinfeld episode where George Costanza did that. And then you reach back into the jar to pull it out so he could show. Not a good idea. <laughs> but I think sometimes because our life is about our effort, we want to make sure that everybody, including God, sees how hard we're working. The problem is you can never work hard enough and be good enough for God. Even with Paul's resume, he's still going to fall short. But sometimes we think when a life is about us, it's ultimately it's about our effort. And then the final thing that's true about our life before we'll shift with Paul and talk about a life for him, a life for Jesus, a life for God. And the final thing is this, it's about myself righteousness Verse 6, he says, as to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. You capture that? How can Paul as a human being say that he's blameless? I'll tell you why, because he kept the law, which was not necessarily the law that God originally gave to Moses. It was the law that human beings had taken and added to and tweaked and adjusted and and parsed. And finally, Paul got that one down really well. So according to Jewish law, Paul was blameless. But according to God, he fell short. And this is something for you and I to truly consider about our lives. When we live by self-righteousness, which means, by the way, and this is the way we all work, we always grade ourselves on the curve when it comes to righteousness. Because we don't necessarily think we're perfect, but at least I'm better than they are. And that's how we grade ourselves. See, because self-righteousness requires that you always find, and this is what's crazy about self-righteousness, self-righteousness never compares itself to righteousness. You know what it compares itself to? Unrighteousness. And that's why in self-righteousness we can feel good about ourselves. Because I can find somebody who's qualified as unrighteous, and so at least I'm not like them. That's what the religious leaders did all the time. Find a sinner and say, hey, at least I'm better than them. Remember that Jesus told the story of the unmerciful servant who goes to his master and he owes him literally millions of dollars, and his master forgives him for the huge debt that he has, and then he goes out and he finds a guy that owes him a couple of dollars, and he has him thrown in prison. Why? Because in his mind... He's lost sight of the reality of the fact that even though he's free, he was just forgiven a huge debt so he should have humility for the small debt that somebody else. They're both sinners, both owe debt, but he's forgotten the reality of what's just happened to him. See you are unlike that. no matter how self-righteous you think you and I think are, we have a huge debt that's been forgiven us. And because of that, when we look at other people, we can't somehow see ourselves better than them because we're all in the same boat. We're all broken. So self-righteousness doesn't get us anywhere, and Paul sees that. So we start with that because that is the opposite of a life of worship. That is an opposite of a life for Jesus. That is a life for us. And if you look at those five things, I don't want to live that life. That's miserable. That's horrible. It can't possibly be that that's the the life that God wants me to live. There's got to be something better. There is. It's a life for Him. Now listen, let's go on to the passage. Grab your Bibles again. Starting in verse 7, Paul goes on. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, there it is, it's not about Paul, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And by the way, that is a kind English translation of the word rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or I'm already or already perfect. But I press on to make it my own uh, Because Christ Jesus has made me his own Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind And straining forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize The upward call of God in Christ Jesus And we'll stop there Do you see the change? Completely opposite from the first six verses Paul has completely changed his understanding Of what life's supposed to be about It's for what? His sake. It's not for me anymore. So with that shift, what does that mean for us? What does it look like for for our lives? A life for him looks like this, verse 7, that ultimately it's about finding glory in his glory, not in our glory. In what's good for God is what's good for us. So Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Do you remember the resume that we just read from Paul? Whatever I've gained... Paul had everything according to human standards. He had everything that any Jew could have wanted, any human being at that time could have wanted, and he said, I count all of it as a loss because there's something more important than that. Not my glory, but God's glory. A life for God means that we find glory in God's work in us because we're not seeking our fame, we're seeking his fame. Just just think about In your daily life, what if when you did things, your goal was not to make yourself look good, but ultimately to make God look good? Which means that you weren't so worried about if people noticed you. All you were worried about is if God was getting the glory he deserves in everything that you did. So the pressure is not on you to make yourself look good, but ultimately to make God look good. And so that means you look at your life differently. So it isn't about you getting credit for something good. It's about ultimately everything being pointed to God. Because in the end, when God wins, we win. So let me use this illustration, basketball. You know I love basketball. Um, One of the best games, one of the funnest games I ever played in was uh, uh, last game of the season. We had to win to qualify for playoffs. And it was one of the better games that I played, and so I was making a lot of shots. And so the coach was running a lot of the, the offense to me, which didn't happen a lot. We had a couple of really talented guys on the team. They were kind of having an off night. So it was a great game, and we got to the end. We were, t- we were actually down by two with two seconds left. And so the coach calls timeout and pulls to the sideline, and, and so he draws up a play. Coach is brilliant. And remember, if you know if you know basketball, there's five players on the court at a time. And so when he drew this up, every single player had a, had a role to play. So he set up, and we had run this play a bunch of times, but he put me in the spot, which was the, f- the primary place who was going to get the shot to tie the game. So now I'm feeling excited and feeling nervous at the same time. This is all coming down to me. But at the same time, he also knew that he was watching the way the team was reacting, and so he put our best shooter closest to the ball on the opposite side of the floor of, as me. So he knew exactly what he was doing. So when we ran this play for two seconds, all five players played a very key role in everything that happened on the floor. Mine was, I was the chief decoy on the floor. Because they knew I was making shots. They were actually looking for me. When we caught, when we came back on the floor, they automatically were pointing to me. They knew where I was. And so I was on the furthest part of the floor away. And the ball was originally supposed to go to me, but I was the decoy just to take the defense's attention away. Then the guy who was next to me just was supposed to step away from the basket, away way to pull the defense away. Then the guy next to him actually was the guy who was supposed to go towards the ball. And the guy who was close to the ball went away from the ball to create a screen. And the guy inbounding the ball was supposed to throw it to the best shooter on their team. And from 22 feet out, he nailed it at the buzzer. Coach was a genius. Now, everybody piled on my friend Mike because he made the shot. The gym went crazy. Because we had to go into overtime, students couldn't, like, they couldn't rush the floor. But we are piling on him. We are screaming. But he got the glory, but we got the win. Because all five players had a role on the floor. Nobody will know except the five players on the floor and the guys in the timeout and the huddle knew that I was the decoy. Everybody else on the floor thought I was getting the ball. But I played my role really well. I didn't get any glory. I didn't get to win the shot. I didn't get a kiss from a girl. I did get nothing, <laughs> okay? But I did exactly what I was supposed to do. And at the, end of the, at the end of the night, we won the game. And what did it matter? That I got the glory, that I got to take the shot, that I got to win? No, thank God I didn't take the shot because I probably would have missed the shot. But at the end of the game, it, it, it wasn't about me. It was about collectively the team. And I think if you and I understand, at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's about God's glory. It's about Him getting the win and us being on the winning team. That's ultimately what it's about. Second thing, look at verse 8. A life about, uh, ultimately about Him, is that it's about finding worth in His worth. So these are the opposite of the things we're going through. So Paul, in verse 8, he references everything as a loss for, uh, compared to what? Knowing Christ Jesus. That he has suffered loss. Why? And everything before Jesus is what? It's rubbish. Why? For one purpose. To gain Christ in relationship. To know Jesus. To experience Jesus' death and resurrection. To be all about Jesus. So ultimately Paul says what was worthy of me or was was valuable about me is not valuable anymore because the only thing that is worth my life is Jesus. That is the most valuable thing in my life is knowing Jesus. And that's what Paul was all about. What if the value in your life that drove everything was Jesus. Everything about your life was ultimately, I'm not trying to get over spiritual or religious, but was, was dr- this driving force was that everything in your life was second, always played second place to what Jesus was doing in your life. In every aspect of your life, when push comes to shove, Jesus always wins. How would that actually look in your life? What would you be willing to do? Paul's, listen, what Paul's saying is, I will give up everything if I just have a shot at gaining Christ. If I have an, a, an opportunity to know Jesus, to experience forgiveness, to walk through the process of resurrection, to be with God forever, if I just have a shot at that, I'll give up everything. What would you be willing to do for an opportunity to actually know the God of the universe in Jesus? Now, for us, you're like, well, I go to church, I occasionally read my Bible, I give a little, sometimes I serve if I'm asked, or if I feel guilty, and I just hang on and try to be a good moral person until Jesus comes back. That's all I really have to do. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a life that is completely sold out for the ultimate value of what it means to actually know and follow Jesus every day of his life. But think about our lives. What would you be willing to give up to truly know Jesus? Would you be willing to give up your time Would you allow your schedule to be turned completely upside down just for the shot at giving God your full attention in life so that Jesus could do something in your life? Or does he have to kind of fit into your schedule? Uh, He has to fit in between like 9 and 10.30 on a Sunday morning, maybe 20 minutes each day if I do my devotions, and if I go to a community group, maybe a couple hours a week. That's where God has to, you know, God, you got your time. What if he wants all of our time? What would you be willing to give as far as your money? to have access to you don't have to pay for anything we don't earn our salvation but would you be willing to give up everything all of that you've earned and all of that you saved for and all of that you think is yours just for a shot at actually knowing jesus do you remember when jesus encountered the rich young ruler and he said i've got the law he gave the list just like paul did and he said listen since i was a kid i have been perfect according to the law and then jesus said you lack one thing what did he lack he had wealth and wealth was more valuable to him than knowing jesus Is that true for some of us? When push comes to shove, it's my money, it's my house, it's my car, it's my career, it's my savings, it's my retirement. No, 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 no. It belongs to Jesus. How about another question? How about our safety? Would you be willing to give up your safety just for a shot at knowing Jesus more and gaining Jesus and giving your life to Jesus? That's a big one. Would you give up your comfort? Would you allow your life to be uncomfortable so that you might know Jesus more? It's getting quiet in here. <laughs> you know, I, I have an unfair advantage when I'm traveling, but going to China, you have a whole different understanding of what it means to know Jesus. And just to think about what, is it, what does it mean for somebody in China to say, I'm willing to give everything to know Jesus. They're willing to give up their life. They, they don't worry about things that we worry about. They, they completely give them their lives fully to Jesus. And even in the last few years, where the things, things were opening up in China, there was more religious freedom. Now, you know what's happening? The government's starting to tighten up again. Things are starting to happen like they used to happen. There's people getting thrown in prison, persecution happening again. You know what happens in China? I, I talked to, the, when we were praying last week before service, I just reflect about this. But, you know, for a person, the average person who in China is a believer and they want to go to church, it's much different than what we do. In some areas, particularly in some provinces in in China, there's still heavy persecution. And you know what the process of church looks like for the average Chinese Christian? It's an 8 to 10 hour process. 8 to 10 hours. You're thinking, man, that's crazy. That's a long service. No, that's not just a service. That means because in some places you can't gather because the government knows you're going to gather. And so you know what, for the average, they will go to a house church, and you know what they'll do? There may be maybe 30 or 40 people a part of that house church and you know what they will do? They will all arrive at different times because they know if they all arrive at the same time, the government will catch them. The government watches for larger gatherings of people. So they may get there three hours before there's any real service, but they know if they come at different times, the government won't pick up that there's an actual service. And when they get there, they're actually with a bunch of people who have all week long put their lives on the line to know Jesus, to own a Bible, to confess that Jesus is Lord. And so now the time that they have together is so valuable because now they they can swap stories about the persecution they've experienced during the week and what they've gone through. And then when when the three- or four-hour time period of them being together is done— They all have to leave at different times because if they all leave at the same time, the government's going to know this is a service and they'll shut them down and they'll arrest them. Would you be willing to give up eight to ten hours of your Sunday just to go to church? I'm just asking. Probably most of us, like, ah, the Super Bowl, come on, (laughs) right? In China, they don't care about the Super Bowl. They care about connecting and having the opportunity to be with fellow Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ that might help them grow even more in knowing Jesus I share that why because think about our money and our time and our comfort and our safety what are we willing to give up so that we actually might know Jesus more what are the things in your life that you said no to because you're too busy or because really you wanted to sit home and watch TV. Or you felt a little tired from the work day and you didn't want to go and I don't want to go to that community group because, you know, they would do the same thing. all the time. Brothers and sisters in Christ that you're going to spend eternity with that just just a few moments, you actually might be able to know Jesus just a little bit more from hanging out with them. I'll get off my soapbox and move on. Look at verse nine. The other thing, the fourth or third thing is true about a life. that's about him is that it's about finding righteousness in his righteousness. Paul says, he doesn't want to run it, verse 9, he doesn't want a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but what, he wants a righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. It isn't my actions, it isn't my earning things, it's my belief in who Jesus is and what he's done. And this is the life that you and I have to choose. We can choose between trying to earn our righteousness or relying on the righteousness of God. And we all would say amen to that, Pastor John, except the reality is, how do we live our life? Now, Leaning into the righteousness of God doesn't mean that you and I get a free pass to sin. It means that we rely on the forgiveness that comes through Jesus' death on the cross, which pays for our sin, and the exchange is, he says, I'll take your sin on the cross and then give you my righteousness in exchange. So we rely, that means we confess our sin. That means that we, we feel the, the, the conviction of our sin and we turn it over to Jesus constantly when we blow it. If we have to confess to other people to do that for accountability or to reconcile relationships, we do it. Why? Because we take sin seriously. But that means I'm relying on Jesus to bring righteousness to my life, not myself. But when you and I don't live that way, then every time we fail, we go do one of two extremes. We downplay it like it's no big deal or it dominates and controls our life through shame and condemnation. So we live bound. And so we try to do better next time. And what happens with next time? We fail again. I'm going to do better this time. This time it's going to be different. And we've all said that, right? I'm going to do it different this time. And then you do it the same over and over again. Why? Because you're relying on your righteousness to try to earn yourself into somehow a relationship with God. And you can't do it. You and I have to realize that the only way that you and I are going to be right with God is if Jesus pays for our sin. We have to live in that. I've told stories of how I've broken multiple, growing up, I broke multiple windows with golf balls. Me and golf balls in a neighborhood are not a good thing. Two things that, two two times that stand out to me, I won't go to long stories, but the first time I ever did that, my grandpa saved my life from a a very angry neighbor who was literally, I thought he was going to kill me. And literally my grandpa went and cleaned up the glass, went to the hardware store, bought a brand new window, and put it in within an hour. I didn't pay for it. He saved my life because the neighbor was going to kill me, but my grandpa went and saved the day. But then a few years later, I was at, at our house. That was at my cousin's house, but then at our house and I was out Christmas morning and decided to test out my new golf club in the middle of the street and just happened to put a golf ball right through our neighbor's front window right in the middle of the, their family gathering of opening presents. Not a good scene. Really angry neighbor as well. So, but this was a little different because my dad thought you need to learn a lesson. Now, this is not saying my grandpa's better than my dad, okay? Um, We all know that it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and my dad, right? Okay, you guys have heard his stories before. But he said, you know what? You're going to have to pay for that window. I'm like, Dad, I don't have any money. I was like barely getting allowance, right? He's like, you're going to pay for it. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to pay for it? He said, you're going to do a lot of dishes. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, you're going to do dishes. He goes, you're going to do dishes every morning before you go to school for a, a quarter each time you do dishes, as long as it takes you to pay off the window. Months. Every morning, before I'd go to school, and I think my sisters made more dishes for that period of time, <laughs> I would have to wash dishes. And I remember, like, there's a little chart, like, there's another 25 cents, there's another 25 cents. Like, Dad, could you get the cheap window? You know, this is going on forever, right? And I remember feeling that every single day I was reminded of how bad I felt about that broken window. And I felt horrible, because not only did I feel bad at what happened to my neighbors, but I felt bad for myself. And so my focus wasn't necessarily about Doing the right thing and my my focus was how bad I felt for myself I pitied myself every morning because I had to do dishes because I broke a window Why because I was earning off the payment for my sin or failure See some of us every morning you get up and you pity yourself because your brokenness tells you You have to earn your, your way back in a relationship with god That is trying to earn your own righteousness and you can't do it The joy of knowing is that yeah, I have blown it, but if I confess it and I repent and turn from it, guess what? I am free. So the Bible says that Jesus says, and and John actually records this in 1 John, he says, listen, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from everything that is not right in our life. I'll choose that option. That's what it means to live for God. That's when our life is about him. It's about his righteousness in our life. And then two more things. The fourth thing is in verse 10, 11, that a life for him is about finding life in his death. So, verse ten, eleven, Paul says that he desires that he wants to know Jesus. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to. This is crazy. He wants to become like him in his death. So why? So that he can attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, just just let that settle in for a mo- moment. Paul says Paul was around when Jesus died on the cross. In fact, he was applauding it the torture, and the murder of Jesus on the cross. And then Paul says this, becoming like him in his death, that I would be willing to take on suffering and pain for the sake of somebody greater than me, for a purpose that's greater than my own salvation and my own ability and my own effort to actually sacrifice my life for the purpose of somebody greater being God. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. He was there. Why? So that ultimately, in the end, what will Paul get? He will die as Jesus died, but he will live as Jesus lives. Finding life in his death. We talked about this last week. We talked about zombies. You know how we sometimes live as zombies? We're half-life. We're not really alive because we haven't fully died yet, so we can't be fully alive in what Jesus is doing. But finding life in his death means that there are things in our life that actually have to die. They have to be dealt with. They have to go away. They can't be a part of our lives. They're not things that God takes and somehow makes them better and slaps a bandaid on and says it's okay. There are things in our life that have to die for us to live. And if they don't die, they will continue to suck the life right out of us. In areas of addiction, in areas of brokenness from our past, and shame that we feel from the things that was done to us or that we've done to others. Things that we haven't dealt with addictions that follow their, their way through our lives that we hang on to it may not even be the form of you think it's an addiction but it's something that dominates your life and there has to be a marker in time where that thing dies you know it's funny we do it with our kids there's there's seasons of life with our kids when ki- our kids grow up that sometimes the, the certain behavior that they're involved in we would say that is what a child does but you can't do that anymore anybody ever addicted to a blanket growing up anybody ever suck their thumb growing up i did but there comes a time where your parents say, yeah, you know what? That behavior was fine in the past, but not today. My cousin, in fact, my cousin, I can't remember how old he is, but my, my uncle said he, he, was, he had a blanket, and it was like, you know, by the time, I don't know how old he was, it was like a little shredded piece of cloth, right? You know, those things. But he, it was his thing, and so his dad said, you know what? Th- we're done. And I, I don't know if this is the best way. I don't know if he's been scarred, like, for his whole life, but he said, we're going to have a ceremony, and we're going to put it on the barbecue, and we're going to burn it. Yeah, Because in his dad's mind, it's like, you've got to say goodbye to this thing. This is not going to follow you into adulthood. You're not going to be 25 with two kids sucking your thumb with your blanket, right? So they did. They had a special ceremony. They went out in the backyard, and they laid it on the barbecue, and they torched it. Now, he cried, and he sobbed, but he never had a blanket the rest of his life. So you're like, that's a horrible parent. I don't know. Maybe not. Why? Because in his mind, my cousin's mind, from that moment forward, he couldn't go back. Why? Because the blanket was gone. And it's like he couldn't get a replacement blanket because it didn't have the same stains and smell and, you know, all that stuff. So it was dead. Some of us need to have a ceremony in our life where something in our life needs to die. And I'm not saying you need to go out in your backyard and burn something, but if God says you need to do that, maybe you need to do that. Maybe it's a possession that you need to get rid of. Whatever it is, it's something that you know is holding you back. And maybe you need to bring other people into the process so they can hold you accountable so you don't go back to your dead past. Why? So that you and I can just as Jesus died and is raised to the dead, from the dead just like baptism is identifying with Jesus, dying in the water, being raised to life as you come out of the water so that your past stays in your past and your future is your future. That's what God has created us to be. And then the final reality is this we're going to live a life about him then it has to be about running his race not mine the last couple of verses in verse 12 and through 14 paul really lays out the tension and the pressure of pressing forward into a life of, of that's for god and he says this in the in starting in verse 13 he says forgetting what lies behind straining forward to what lies ahead i press the word press is strain it's tension toward the goal the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What What is he pressing? What is he doing? He's using an athletic analogy here. He's running a race, and we know that from Paul's writings. He talks about the Christian life is a race. Paul's running a race, but he's not running his race. He's running God's race. Why is that important? Because God determines the distance, the speed, the length, and the terrain of your race. You don't get to pick it for yourself. You can run really fast, and you can be running the wrong way. And for some of us, we do. We run really fast in life, but we're not running the race that God's laid out for us because the race that we're running and the end brings glory to us and not glory to him. And we can become pretty proficient in it and we'll slap some God language on it and we'll make ourselves feel good and we'll Christianize it. But at the end of the day, if we're honest with ourselves, this is not about God. This is not about the, the finish line and bringing glory to God. This is about the finish line. You and I crossing the finish line and saying, look at me. Look what I've done. But Paul's what? Paul's pressing on for what? What God has called Him to, which is bigger and above His own life, it's not about Him. And if you and I would think about that, what is maybe there's a different term we can use, the script that you and I write for our lives. We can run a race, but is it God's race? Is it the race that God's laid out for us, because that race will bring glory to him? But let me ask you this, because I think this is probably more accurate for most of us. You and I have an unwritten script for our lives. We all do. It's called an agenda. And we bring it to the table every single day of our life. And in that agenda, in that script, is written out the things that we think have to be present in our life and at least some semblance of how they're supposed to unfold for us to be happy. It's a script. And we become very proficient at the script. And because when we get off script or life gets off script, the first person that we get mad at is God. And we tell him, it's not supposed to be this way. And he says, you're right. Because it's your script, not mine. Because it's your race, not mine. But we get mad at God because God's supposed to do, He's stu- what's he supposed to do? He's God, he's supposed to bless my script. He's supposed to bless my life. He's supposed to bless my race. No, God blesses what he's doing, not what we're doing. But just think about that in your life. What's the typical script for us? The typical script looks something like this. You grow up and you probably go through some challenges in life, but you're resilient and you keep moving forward. You, you graduate high school, and if you're fortunate, if you go on to college and you get a degree and you come out of college and... And you get a good job. That's the goal, right? You get educated. Mom and dad finally get you out of the house. Now you're independent. Now you're paying off your student loans, but you're still trying to make a life. And somewhere in college or just out of college, you find the person of your dreams. And you get married, and you have no money when you start, but you struggle, and you're both working, and then... If you're a guy, obviously your wife gets pregnant and so then she can't work anymore, but you're going to make it work. You strain and you get a couple kids and you're a marginal parent, but you're happy enough. And you're just kind of making your way through life and some good things happen and some bad things happen. And then you start to actually become accomplished in what you're doing. So now you're in your mid-30s getting to 40, and you've gotten a couple more promotions, and now you've got enough money that, that, that you can probably afford the house that you've really wanted, for, wanted in the city that you live in. And so you buy the house, and you live in the house, and it's a nice house, and, and it's great, but even there's a bigger house that you like, but that's something that would only be in a fairy tale, and you pray God for, to God for him to give it to you, and he doesn't give it to you, and you're like, oh, well. And you just kind of living that way. Am I making sense to anybody? And then you and I get in about mid-40s, about to 50, and we start thinking about retirement. So we make sure that at that point we start ramping up our savings for, you know, our 401k and make sure if we have a pension that's going to be enough. And we start talking about all the trips we're going to take when we retire and if we're going to downsize the nice house that we're going to move into that's smaller than what we're in and our kids are going to grow up and they're growing up and then we're having grandkids and, and all this, this is the script that we live in. Anytime that script doesn't unfold in our lives, we turn around to God and say, God, why are you not good? You and I have to think about that. Because that's not the script that God has written out for most of us. But you know what that script is? That's the American dream. And we have to be careful that we don't confuse the two. Because what Paul is describing in this passage that we're reading does not work with the American dream. It's not to say that you can't have a house and a successful career and a good college degree and a wonderful spouse and kids. No, that you can have those things. But if that's the script of success and f- um, fulfillment and happiness in your life, then you're going to be constantly disappointed when it doesn't unfold the way you want it to be, and you're going to point at God as though it's God's fault because God somehow owes you that script. Paul said, I count everything as a loss. I don't need the car. I don't need the safe life. I don't need the perfect family. I don't need the career. I don't need the 401k. I don't need all of that stuff. If only I can just attain Christ. And if I have him, it doesn't matter what I have or don't have in this life because I have all that I need. And if you and I were willing to lay down our script and think about it, and this is one, one of the things, just, and I'll close with this. In fact, worship team, you can come join me. We're going to do one last song. But this is, what if our lives, and I've seen the, the opposites happen. This is just an example, okay? I've seen people who get into their mid-50s or pushing 60, and now there's talking retirement. Some can get early retirement. And, and I've seen the two different realities kind of unfold. There's people in our church that this is what they've done, and I've, other people I've known it. So as they're getting towards retirement, they they work really hard and they get early retirement for one reason. Because they see when they retire as a chance at living a different life. And it's a life that's not going to be about making a living. It's not going to be about living in a really nice house. It's going to be a a life that now that I have money coming in and most of my bills are all going to be taken care of, now I can fully devote my life to Jesus. Now I can travel. Now I can serve people. Now I can care for people. Now I can give generously. I can do all those things. And I've watched people work towards early retirement. So now that their retirement isn't about them resting from all the work in their life, their retirement is about fully being deployed for whatever Jesus wants to do in their life here or around the world. I love that kind of retirement. Because you know what? There is no biblical precedent for retirement, by the way. There isn't. Retirement in the kingdom of God comes when you die. Heaven's retirement. It's going to be great. But you know, I've also seen other people. That when they come to the pinnacle of their influence in following Jesus, because of the life that they've lived and trying to follow Him, but they look at their retirement as an opportunity to check out on everything. I've seen people, both at Antioch and churches I pastored and in the Body of Christ, and they've served faithfully in the church and they've served God's mission as much as they could with balancing family and career and house and car and all those things. But then when they get to retirement, they're thinking, "I'm done." So when I retire, I'm just going to cruise. I'm going to live in the house I want to live in. I'm going to go on a cruise once a month. I'm going to fly all over the world. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Why? Because I'm retired. That's a tragic life. Because I've seen people with great influence and great maturity in who Jesus is that have so much to offer the body of Christ in the world. And they've got, once they retire, they've got a good 15, 20 years left in them that they could go crazy for God and see amazing things happen. But they're retired Why don't you align I let Jesus determine when we retire You can quit work but don't quit Jesus Because at the end of the day Our lives are about him Our lives are about him Let me pray and then we're going to sing one last Song together as a declaration That our lives will be for Jesus Lord Jesus we thank you for this morning We thank you for your work in our lives And Lord I, I, I know that every time we are encountering your scriptures and your holy spirit speaking to us that lord we want conviction we don't want condemnation we want to feel the deep presence of your spirit that moves us forward into what you have not the lies from the enemy that would push us back so lord right now as we look at our life would you allow us by your spirit to be inspired to live lives that are about you and not about us so lord what you've highlighted in these moments about things that maybe need to die in our life, things that need to stay in the past, things that we need to embrace move moving forward, adjustments in our schedule and in our time and in our resources, that ultimately, that at the end of every day, Jesus, we can look back and say, today was about you, it wasn't about me. So let, like Paul, at the end of the day, everything else is a loss, but all that I care about, Jesus, is that I gain... The knowledge and the relationship and knowing you and walking in you so that someday all of us will celebrate in our amazing retirement in your presence forever bringing glory to you as we did here we will do there we ask that you would do that in us and as we sing jesus last song would you seal in us that our lives including the way we live monday through saturday and what we do on sundays are always and is always about you in jesus name Amen.